Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. I was on this streak of, you know, my net worth going from probably a couple hundred thousand to 500,000 to a million to a couple of million all within, you know, say three years, right? It was just like doubling every few months. And I thought I couldn't lose. I mean, I was cocky. I was arrogant about it. Not not really outward arrogant to other people, but certainly out. You know, I remember people giving me financial advice and I'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when I need you. You know, Mr. Financial Advisor making, you know, 12% returns. I'm making 100%. Why would I listen to you? You know, and, and sure enough, when the hammer fell, it fell pretty hard, right? So I went from having a couple of million in liquid assets at like 32 years old, all self-made to I had to scramble to kind of save the house we had just built. As difficult as that loss of money was for our guest this week, Ken Eslick, the most challenging thing about moving beyond it was decoupling his identity from the number of zeros on his balance sheet. Describing himself as someone who was good at making money, but not at keeping it, he needed to change the story he had told himself about himself since he was a teenager. I am Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Warwick and I talk with Eslick about how he bounced back from his financial failures, and also how he overcame a drinking problem that cost him his job. Those challenging journeys help him craft a new narrative for his life and career, one that's led him to found The Leaders Lab, an executive search firm that's placed more than 500 executives. He's also the host of the popular Leaders Lab podcast. Ken, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And um, Ken was very kind to have me on his podcast, Leadership Lab, and very much enjoyed that. And uh, we wanted to return the favor. And Ken has a fascinating uh, story. And I love what you do with your podcast, Leadership Lab, as well as your your business, uh, your recruiting uh, business. Uh, and I love the fact, which we'll get into, you've got a bunch of things that you do, but I like the fact you say relationships come first. Yeah. Because uh, yes, it's a, out of business and recruiting people, but the relational side is critical. And I love the fact that you say it comes first. So before getting into kind of what you do with your podcast and your recruiting, executive recruiting business, I'd love to hear about sort of the backstory of Ken Aslick, how you grew up, because I find often how we grew up is pretty instrumental in influencing our lives, even our crucibles, if you will. So just yeah. what was a Ken, young Ken Eslick like? Where did you grow up? And yeah, what was life like for you growing up? Well, thanks so much, guys, for having me on the show. And and Warwick, you know, um, I think you sharing your story and, and, you know, creating a podcast and writing a book and everything else around it helps guys like me get through our own, you know, situations and not let them define us. But you, you're going to hear a lot about my background, I guess, today, because I guess when we talk about our crucibles or, or you know, these kind of life-defining or can be life-defining moments, like a lot of them are based on, you know, our expectations and our expectations are based on, you know, how we were raised and, you know, what our environment was and what we thought our identity was or our definition of, of success was, right? So, um, you know, my uh, parents were were uh, were married um, uh, young, and had kids young, and and had uh, I'm sure you know the struggles that young couples have when they get married when it comes to finances, 
And, um, you know, so I'd say we grew up, uh, you know, certainly blue collar, uh, maybe upper, lower class, lower middle class, something like that. It, it always seemed like money was a challenge. Uh, for my parents, <laughs> my dad heard one of my a snippet from one of my other podcasts, and he said, "You always had a roof over your head." And I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, we, we did, but that's not the definition of of abundance necessarily, right?" So, I, I, to me, as a kid, it's all about your perception, right? It's it's not about the reality, really, especially when you're a kid, because you, you know you don't know all the facts. But what I saw through my lens back then was that money could somehow be a gateway out of struggle uh, because it seemed like my parents struggled with it a lot. And it seemed like the message that I got was, was, you know, people that have money didn't have to struggle as much, you know? So from a very young age, uh, we grew up in this blue collar environment. Parents both worked and dad was a truck driver and later worked his way into management. And, you know, I just felt like, like, like I was trailing the kids I grew up with. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. We weren't starving. I wasn't out on the streets and I've heard other stories on your show where it's funny. We sometimes apologize for what our version of lack was because compared to someone else, I, I get it. But that was my world at the time was, was, uh, you know, we're, we're struggling and you got to kind of claw. And so from a very young age, I, I started thinking about, and this is up in the Seattle area growing up and I was like, well, this isn't for me. Uh, I'll find a way out, you know, and if this, and if the, if the way out is through monetary gain, then I'm going to do everything in my power to make money. And I, and I did like really young, really young, like eight years old. I was, I was finding ways to, to make money. Um, so, you know, selling newspapers, picking apples, like doing whatever I needed to do to make some money. And once I got a taste of that, I only wanted more. So I would lie about my age and get actual real jobs. Like I was washing dishes in a restaurant at 13 years old and, um, kind of running the whole show at like 15. They thought I was 18 or 19 because I had been there for a few years and it all kind of worked, man. Like it was, it was, you know, it, I had freedom. I had. I didn't have to ask for things. I didn't have to uh, bother my parents, who again were still kind of struggling with their own money issues or whatever. And all of this kind of. Um, I'm sorry to me to rant for so long on my upbringing. No, no. But, okay, it's no, good. <laughs> so this leads into high school, and I'm buying my own car. And there's a lot of good that comes from this, right? I think we forget sometimes that when our priorities are misaligned. Um, we don't know that at the beginning. At the beginning, they're aligned, right? At the beginning, it's like my North Star is make money. Money equals freedom and and success and things like that. And and so for a while, it does, right? And, and going into my um, uh, late teens, I joined the military and I get out and I get married and I start a business and it's all kind of working, right? We're making more money and we're getting more stuff. And and then uh, inevitably, I have kind of my moment, which comes later, where it doesn't work anymore um, and the money's gone. And I think when you base your whole identity around a thing, you know, whether that's money, uh, whether that's a title, whether that's uh, any of it, then that can be devastating because it's not just a loss of some paper. It's it's a loss of identity. And I think that's, that's the thing I know you've talked about and written about, but that, that was the biggest thing for me was, was when I had my sort of wake up call and I've had it more than once. Cause apparently I didn't receive the message the, the first couple of times. So I had to hear it more than once, 
Um, that's the biggest thing is, is watching. And then I've learned, I think is just watching what we tie our identity to and our self-worth to, uh, and what we don't tie it to, you know, and I, and I know ultimately you guys agree with me because you're trying to talk to people about, Hey, if you want to live a life of significance, what is significance for you? And ultimately I think for anybody that I know that's had any kind of, you know, ongoing fulfillment, it has to be tied somehow into helping others and contributing uh, as a whole. It can't be through materialistic things or just, you know, the the gain of wealth. Well, I mean, that is an incredible perspective. I love just, you know, which we'll uh, talk a bit more about the issue of identity. So when you think about parents, friends in high school, did you feel like you heard hear this message that, you know, maybe uh, we're not on the streets, but it's str- we're struggling, it's challenging and, you know, the rich kids, the CEOs of these companies, they sit back and they have their houses in, you know, the Hamptons or wherever it is, and they're on easy street. And if only I could get money, somehow life would be better. Did you feel like you consciously or subconsciously heard this message around you saying, money is the path to happiness, money is the, is the path to less struggle? To freedom. It was clear to yeah. me that that I mean, with every fiber of my body, I believed in what you just said. You know, I, I naively assumed that uh, the wealthy didn't really have very many problems, or if they did, they were pretty trivial. You know, because to me, this this lack uh, of of finances was such a big thing that if you could con- if you could conquer that, the other stuff would would kind of be child's play. It would be really really easy. And of course, we know that isn't true, but. Um, at the time, it sure felt like it, you know. Well, when it's something you haven't experienced, how can you possibly know it's not true? Right. You know? It also makes it easy because if it's something that's slightly outside of your reach, then you don't have to address any character flaws or anything else, right? It's, oh, it's this thing that I can't have because the way that I grew up. So that's what's affecting my relationships. That's what, as a kid, is maybe affecting my degree of popularity or whatever it might be, right? At school, it's it's this external thing. It's not me, right? It's this external thing. So um, I think we I think we can use those things that are outside of I don't want to say outside of our reach, but that that are some to some degree outside of our control, we can use those as crutches at all stages of life, right? It's not me, it's this. To me, the bottom line is it's so easy to think, if only I had X pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if only I had Y, all my life would be, it'd be great. I just need that one thing. And if you look at it, we're talking about money because that was both of our crucibles. But when you look at it, people do it with other areas of their life, right? So if someone's lacking in a intimate relationship, they'll say, well, if I if I could just be with that perfect woman, perfect man, whatever, that that would solve it. That's what I need, right? That's what I, I need, this external thing that I can't completely control that's not making me full. And the energy that comes with that, it's kind of funny because if you're... In all of these areas, I feel like, you know, someone has, has probably struggled in 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 a key area of life, whether that's a romantic relationship, whether that's spirituality, whether that's money, whether that's and when we're not lacking in one area, but we're lacking in another. So for me, it was it was maybe this money scarcity issue, but relationships were fine. So if I looked at somebody that was starving from a relationship standpoint, and we, you guys know what I'm talking about when I say starving, sure. right? They're so clingy and looking and, uh, right. and it's got to, and energetically <laughs> right. it repels it, right? But it's the yeah. same way with money or anything else. Energetically, 
you're, you, you, because of what you're saying, you haven't done the the inside work to feel at ease with this stuff that even if you get it, you're going to give it away. Uh, you know, you're going to lose it, whether that's the relationship, the money or anything else. So um, I'd like to learn that lesson a little earlier. And I think that's why I don't mind going on podcasts and stuff and talking to it is if we could save someone 20 years of their life, that would be nice, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well said, Ken. So Let's talk a bit about your crucibles. You've been an entrepreneur since a teenager mm-hmm. and uh, you're working hard, got out of the army. So talk about sort of the rise, if you will. You're out of the army and you're starting to make money. So what were you doing? How did that all happen? How did that the rise, if you will, financially? I was going to stay in the army um, more than one term. I really, really liked it. And I was actually scheduled to um, to go back to Berlin, which is, had been one of my duty stations. This was right when the Berlin Wall was coming down. And we didn't know it was coming down, but everybody that had orders for Berlin got them canceled. So we you know, kind of suspected. And that nullified my reenlistment. So it all of a sudden went from... Because if I did two tours, I was going to stay in 20 years. It was like, you might as well. You get you know retirement and all of that. So... So that moment, like the Berlin Wall really kind of defined our lives. When I say our lives, I mean, my family, my wife and I were already married at the time. And and it was literally just a a judgment that had to be made in in a matter of a couple of days. Like, hey, your orders are are nullified. What do you want to do? We'll send you wherever you want to go. And it was like, you know, I've kind of got this entrepreneurial bug. I like the army, but I don't like the... uh, you know, the unknown of they can just ship me wherever they want, you know, so there's some, some good and some bad that comes from my wife and I just decided, okay, I'll get out. And when I did, I I reached out back home, called my dad, said, do you know anybody in any of your service clubs or in our community? We lived in kind of a small town that, you know, might be uh, selling a business. And I don't know why, but I, I kind of knew that I wanted to be in some kind of business services. Um, I felt like it was like a low point of entry. Um, you know, you didn't need a bunch of inventory. You didn't need uh, a building. You didn't need all this stuff. And so anyway, um, uh, introduced me to a friend of his that I ended up buying out this guy that serviced portable fire extinguishers and serviced first aid kits out of the back of a pickup truck, literally. And so I bought this guy out and bought his inventory and bought his truck, which blew a rod like two months into it. But (laughs) nevertheless, I I was off to the races and this guy was doing it part-time. So it was kind of easy to look at and go, well, this guy, um, was quite a bit older than me at the time, had slowed down quite a bit, wasn't really at the peak of his career and was only working at part-time. So I looked at it and went, well, okay, I'm going to need to generate a lot more money than he is. Not, not that I had a big income to make up. It's just, he wasn't making enough for us to live. So, so it all worked, you know, I, I kind of, everything I looked at with it, uh, you know, how much effort would it take? What would the return be like? Everything like out of the gate exceeded expectations, right? I was beating sales. I was beating profit numbers. Um, one of our suppliers came in and said, hey, you know, on the first aid side said, hey, if you get out of the fire business, uh, we'll actually give you, we had a, another uh, distributor that that kind of went under and owes this money and we'll give you their book of business if you get out of the other business. So I'm like, okay. So just kept building it and, and it built pretty quick over about an eight year time frame. And a large Fortune 500 company came in and they were getting into into our industry and they needed young leaders. So it was kind of this perfect match where they wanted the end user and they needed a guy like me. You know, they needed a guy in their early 30s to kind of head up operations out in that part of the country, which was NorCal at the time. So 
I went from this kid, you know, you think about this over like an eight year period of time, this kid that, uh, you know, just wanted to make some money, wanted to have some weekend money to joining the army, to having some success there to now, uh, these guys were going to cash me out for several hundred thousand dollars back then and clear any debt we had. And I was going to go to work for them. So it was a pretty life changing moment. Um, uh, well, had I handled <laughs> had I handled the money right, it definitely would have been life changing because uh, uh, it was a stock deal, and that stock would be worth well over ten mil now. But I was young, and I hadn't settled the kind of this money mindset yet. So, to me, I don't know if you guys can relate, but the the money to me felt a lot like always being in a casino, mm-hmm. like. When I was making it, it's almost like I was overly excited. And when I lost it, I was overly, you know, damaged or depressed by it or or whatever. There was too much emotion around it, right? It wasn't just like, well, if I do the right thing over to, especially in investing, you know, investing to me, I was investing like I was in a Vegas casino. And that's ultimately what happened was I, I was on this streak of, you know, my net worth going from probably a couple hundred thousand to 500,000 to a million to a couple of million all within, you know, say three years, right? It was just like doubling every few months. And I thought I couldn't lose. I mean, I was cocky. I was arrogant about it. Not not really outward arrogant to other people, but certainly out. You know, I remember people giving me financial advice and I'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when I need you, you know, Mr. Financial Advisor making you know, 12% returns, I'm making a hundred percent. Why would I listen to you? You know? And, and sure enough, when the hammer fell, it fell pretty hard. Right. So I went from having a couple of million in liquid assets at like 32 years old, all self-made to, I had to scramble to kind of save the house we had just built. Um, because all of the liquidity went away. I mean, the only thing I still had was a good job, but all the liquidity went away because not only did I have all my money out in the stock market, our money out in the stock market, but I was leveraging because why wouldn't you leverage when you can't lose? You know, <laughs> it just seemed so smart at the time. The The portfolio literally went from 2 million to, to, to nothing after tax. Cause I mean, you know, um, the tax had to be paid on the money and you couldn't claim all of the losses in the same year and all the tax stuff that I didn't really care to look into. Cause that doesn't, you know, who cares? And, um, and so it just kind of wipes me out. And I got to tell you, emotionally, it was just everything in my life had, had, had put me in that place in my mind, like that I had beaten the odds that I had done this without a college degree, that I had done it without uh, any family money or anything like that, that, um, I had hit all these goals and now it was just gone completely. Like it was, it was so the feeling was so weird and so transactional. Thank God for my family because I wouldn't say I had suicidal thoughts, but that's only because my brain just wouldn't let me go there. But I felt complete. I felt depleted. I mean, you know, emotionally and spiritually, just depleted. And luckily, I did have my family, and and I had a good job that I could kind of build on, and I built back up over time, or we did but I was so damaged. Like I was so scared even to invest. I never put money in the stock market anymore at that point. Um, I was always waiting for the shoe to fall. I mean, I went from one extreme to the other, right? I went from, you know, bet it all on red to, um, oh God, 
you know, don't buy anything outside a passbook account. I mean, I, I was almost putting money in coffee cans in the backyard. You know what I mean? Like I was just that paranoid after all that happened. And so it's still my identity. If you can hear that, like it, like that right. first crucible didn't do anything to cure the problem. Uh, if you notice, I'm still just, I was still emotionally tied the same way. It was just now, now it was like my North star is still money. When you think about it, that's why I wanted to protect it so much. Right. When I say my North Star is still money, I don't mean now. I mean at this time, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 And and so now I'm like, well, it didn't dawn on me that maybe I've been focusing on the wrong thing. It just dawned on me that I did it wrong, that I got it wrong, that I should still be focused on making money, my North Star. Now I should just protect it more and work even harder. Right. So this continues on for a while. Uh, and I'm in the corporate world and I'm doing well and I'm rising through the ranks and I'm just kind of slowly building some wealth back up and it's not really making me feel better necessarily, but it is making me feel a little bit more certain, I guess. And then I screw up at work and, um, you know, cause during this time I developed a drinking habit, um, that I had started frankly back at probably the beginning of this whole money chasing thing anyway, back when I was a teenager, but it was just rearing its ugly head. It was getting worse and worse and worse. And I unceremoniously got got shown the door. I mean, the the permanent records show that I resigned, but you know, it was one of those corporate deals where it was like, you know, we don't think this is going anywhere. How would you like it to to, to conclude, right? And this is based on alcohol, nothing else. My results were awesome. I just uh, screwed up one too many times, and so here I am again. Uh, cause by the way, that, that was an unexpected move to the door. Um, so all of my unvested stock options and things like that went in the toilet. Um, we had some money now, uh, it wasn't, uh, we weren't desolate or anything, but no source of income, uh, no title now, you know, no occupation basically at that point or so I thought. So, and to me, you know, by the way, work. I don't know if this like rings with you guys, but mm -hmm. whenever you have these moments, I think the going back to our childhood where it's like, Hey, you're not enough. You're not from that side of the tracks. You don't make that much money. And the whole time we're like fighting against it. We're like, that's bullshit. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to do this and that. And then when something happens, you go, all the doubts in the back of your head goes, see, like you didn't belong there, right? You didn't. And so that is literally how I felt. So I'm in my forties. I'm uh, unemployed. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. I've got an alcohol problem that I don't want to deal with. Um, and I've, you know, I've got some money, but again, it's, I'm not checking the boxes for me anywhere in life other than maybe some of my relationships, which are important, but so that's when I actually decided to get maybe get to the bottom of all of this, you know, it's so it took a while. Um, and it was through, I'm a Tony Robbins uh, trainer, Gary, and like that was how I, I got involved in that stuff by unwinding my own stuff. You know, why am I wired this way? Why is this important? And so it started with going back to also what you were saying, Warwick, about, you know, your self-disciple, like, like, where does that come from? And And so that's what it was to me. It's like, I'm supposed to be this leader. I'm supposed to be this guy like why am i still chasing things that aren't fulfilling me why am i still so i really had to get to the bottom of how i'm wired and what makes me tick and then from there i could build back so just before we get to how you bounce back i mean there's a lot of fascinating 
themes, you know, obviously you talked about uh, addiction and alcohol addiction, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, sadly a lot of people go through, but it felt like there was like a, a money addiction. There know? was. Just the way you talk about, like, I felt like good when uh, I was making money, but then if I lost something, then I'd feel bad. You know, it almost felt like having a drink versus now I've got the after effects of it, the ups and the downs. It just, I'm not an expert in addiction more broadly speaking, but it, it feels like it was uh, chasing money and ignoring good uh, financial advice. I mean, it's so ironic that when you don't deal with the internal stuff, the probability of making money, I don't know if it's zero, but it's pretty close because inevitably your uh, damage, and I've certainly been damaged myself, will get in the way of making good decisions, of good, yeah, you're, sound you're, decisions. You're hardwired right? to give it away. You're, you're literally hardwired to give it back away. So I would even say things in my own mind and maybe even out loud to a couple of people that were close to me. I'm good at making money. I'm not good at keeping it. I'd be, that's just the way it is. It's almost as if the universe said, you know, here's how we're going to wire this guy. We're going to allow this guy to make money and not keep it. And I'd almost be like, okay, that's fine. That's just my thing. And I'll just work harder. Right. That was my answer to everything. It's almost like you're a hamster on a treadmill and it's like, okay, I'm just going to run faster. That's it. You know, I'm in this bottomless pit. So the sands are going to come in, you know, the grains of gold dust will come in and I won't be able to keep it. But maybe if it comes in uh, fast enough, I can get enough in my hand before it slips through my fingers. And You're some, exactly right. And the other big mentality. motivator there, Warwick, was that Again, money motivated, so I cared a lot about external, right? I cared a lot about how it looked. So to me, it's like if the appearance of success was there, the good job, the good marriage, the good family, the nice house, even if I was pedaling, like you're saying, like on the hamster wheel to keep the thing going behind the scenes, that was okay. I was just like, I mean, I didn't love it, but I, I was used to that. That was my MO. Now, I didn't want to address the drinking because I just didn't want to give it up. And I knew that if I addressed it, I would have to. Um, and so I, that happened a few years later. But that happened on the back of other what I would consider very um, focused self-discovery. You know, like I, I was on it all the time. And and eventually, uh, you know, you got to get to the bigger addictions. But going back to like somebody doesn't need to be an expert in addiction to realize that for any of us, because it can be an addiction to electronics it can be addiction to whatever it's i have a friend that says look if you're engaged in behavior that no longer serves you and yet you do it over and over again anyway that's an addiction right so that could be the food that you're eating that can be the drink that you're having that can be the thoughts we get very addicted to our thoughts we talk about these crucible moments there's people that are addicted to their crucible moment right they're, they're addicted to the, the pain, they're addicted to the story, they're addicted to the drama. It's almost, they don't like it, but it's almost like, who would I be without it? You know, because to give up that story, I got to replace it with something else, right? Yeah, I want to jump in because I do have uh, the same background that you have, Ken, as we've yeah. talked about. I'm 26 years sober right now. And um, 
Uh, what that, you were just saying, uh, uh, thank you very much. What you were just saying uh, touches on something that my sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous told me in my first tentative stumbly steps um, to sobriety. And that was because um, I thought that what made me an alcoholic was how much I drank. Mm-hmm. And what he said to me was, no, it's not how much you drink. It's why you drank. Yeah. Uh, and I realized I drank to change the way I felt. If I was yep. happy, I wanted to get happier. If I was sad, I wanted to get happy. If I was mad, I wanted to forget about it. Um, so that kind of self-reflection, I think, applies, right, not just to drinking, but I think for any kind of situation. I think it's easy for people to hear this conversation right now um, and think, Warwick had billions that he lost. Ken had millions that he lost. I can't relate to that. It's not how much you lose, right? It's it's how important is it to your to your identity what you lost, right? That's really the 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 fulcrum on which all this turns, isn't it? Yeah, the scale is it's irrelevant to the because it only matters how you how you feel about it, right? How it affects you and your world and and what you do with that moving forward. And um, yeah, because guess what? There's somebody who's lost more money than Warwick. Not too many Warwick, but they're out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if if somebody could find that person, that would really be helpful. But... I mean, tw- Twitter for Elon Musk, but you know the problem is he's still got another 150 billion sitting around, so he's, exactly. he'll be okay probably. But yeah, it, it, you know, and it's funny. So, I mean, I think once for any of us, once we start doing the the inner work, the real work of going like, oh, maybe it's me, right? Maybe there's a theme here. Maybe it's not the universe. Maybe I'm not just destined to make money and then spend it all. Maybe it's not everybody else getting lucky and me getting unlucky. Maybe I have to do this stuff. And I think the more that you do it, you'll eventually address the elephants in the room if you stay with the work. Uh, to me, alcohol was probably one of the last things to go. And even when it went, it, <laughs> it was kind of funny because, uh, Gary, you might get this too, especially if you're in recovery. But I think even for those that aren't, it's, it's kind of funny. So I didn't want to give up alcohol because I associated with everything good. Like, you know what I mean? So So it was like, when you're done working, you get to drink and have fun and like hang out and stuff. I was generally kind of a happy drunk, even though I did it all the time. I wasn't like a depressed drunk. I, I was usually a energetic, happy drunk. So so to me, happiness, time off, relaxation, everything good. Since I was like 13, 14 years old and started drinking, everything good like had alcohol involved, right? And if it didn't, it probably yep. should because it would have made it better. And, uh, so when you all of a sudden, so I'm like, okay, intellectually, I know it's it's got to go. So I'll give it up. And when I give it up, all the stuff that the universe has been withholding from me, right? <laughs> all the riches, all the clients right. that I want to get in my business, that will just show up because that's the block, right? The block is that I've been drinking. I'll give up the drinking and it'll all show up. And I give up the drinking and, you know, nothing showed up except for, you know, I still had all the same problems and now my medicine was gone. And, and you know, so I was, I was more irritable and probably annoyed in my first couple of years of sobriety because I also didn't find a sponsor or a community or anything else. So what I did was I replaced my drinking with like self-pity and I hung out in that mm. state yep. for a bit. And then finally I went like, okay, why did I drink? Where did it start? Um, and, and started unraveling that stuff. And as you do it, 
I think if you stay with the work, and this could be the work of of AA for someone that's recovering from alcohol, but or just the work of being a human, right? Of what are these? What are my hangups? What are you know as a person like where 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 am I needing to develop? I think eventually, if you stay with it's like pulling back layers of an onion, and eventually. I did, I was able to take all that time that was spent on drinking and go, wow, it's now being used in such a productive way, right? I'm not obsessing about not drinking anymore or anything, but I spent a good couple of years in early recovery, just being annoyed, uh, just being a <laughs> drunk without, without alcohol, you know, but a, I still have the same mentality. A dry drunk, we call it. That's it. That's it. And that was me. I mean, I was textbook dry drunk, you know, sitting in the back of the room, pissed off. I mean, there's yep. probably people going, just just drink again already, man. You were better, you know. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating what you're saying about not just the alcoholism, but um, the attitude to money is the why matters. And yeah. obviously, you guys know better than I do how that relates to alcoholism. But, you know, for some people, when they feel bad about themselves, it might pour them into themselves into drink, to making money. To overeating. Sometimes there are issues with overeating that have biological issues with metabolism. But often it's I feel bad at myself, so I have a if I have another you know cake or whatever it is, uh, I'll feel better about myself. And yeah. for a while you do, and then so gambling or every addiction at its root, at least it seems to me, I'm no expert on it. Is the issue of why, but. Most people don't want to deal with the why because it's really, really painful. Yeah. You know, it's like to deal with. So, talk about that because you've obviously had to deal with this. That had to have been painful. Did you, what did you find as you dug into the why? You know, why do I, Ken S, like do all these things that, you know, logically don't make a whole lot of sense, whether it's alcoholism or not listening to good advice or then getting so afraid you said, yeah, I'll invest in treasury bills or certificates yeah. of deposit, you know, maybe not even that. Maybe I'll just stick it under the mattress. I mean, either way, it's not sensible. What did you find in your journey within yourself to the why? What made Ken do all those things? I think I was so concerned with the perception of success that I didn't care about how it felt necessarily. I, I cared about how it looked. And I think if I could shoestring together, but of course we know, and especially, you know, looking back at it, that that, that wasn't a, a really awesome plan or anything, but, but I mean, I think in, in the moment it was, it was, I just wanted to hold on to this idea that I had made it that I was doing this. So, so if you listen to kind of what I, you know, behind the lines of what I'm saying is there's no vulnerability in that. You know what I mean? It's, it's don't show weakness. Don't talk about your crucible. Don't talk about your challenges. Certainly don't talk about having a problem with alcohol because that might mean you have to give it up in addition to looking weak. Right. So to me, everything was about looking strong and the way to look strong was to either be strong or bullshit, you know, when you, when you couldn't be right, like somehow just keep it going. And I think through the, through the years, the, the why that is a very unfulfilling why, obviously it's going to keep leading you down the same road. And I think that the, the beat down that life will give you, I think in 
trying to teach you the same lesson over and over again until you finally listen. Um, I had just received that message a lot. I mean, I think that before I gave up alcohol, I was already on the path. It was alcohol was not something for me that I one day um, woke up and and you know had to give up. Right, that happens to some people. It's like rock bottom, right? Where you hear about rock bottom. Yeah, Garen, Gary, it sounds like you felt that. <laughs> Indeed. But, Oh, trust me, there were many moments that I could tell you, listen to this, what happened, you know, back when I was a kid, or listen to this, what happened, and you'd be like, you didn't quit. I was like, no, you could have called many areas of rock bottom. But I guess what I'm saying is, at the time I gave it up, there was nothing spectacular about that moment, other than I had just started doing the work of developing myself, right? I'll tell you what happened the night before. So I was at, I had done all this work with Tony Robbins. I'd gone through all the seminars, done all the stuff. And then I was going through leadership with them. And I have a thing called Leadership Academy. I was meeting a friend of mine. We were sharing an Airbnb with a couple of other people. This is down in San Diego in 2017. And I my, my drinking nights were becoming less and less enjoyable and a lot more regretful, even though the actions weren't really that much different. It was just like, I was so sick of it. And it was so out of integrity. Basically, I always felt out of integrity. I always felt the need to apologize. I always felt the need to cover my ass. And so I wasn't really loving things anyway, but I wasn't ready to give it up. I found some local, uh, I went to like a VFW veterans of foreign war post in, uh, San Diego, met some GIs that I'd never met before, but we all connected cause it's easy to do. And we all drank a lot cause that's what you do and just got hammered and came back to the Airbnb and was passed out so hard that like, I couldn't hear them trying to get in. I slept through dinner. They had never seen me like that. And the next day, they you could see the look of worry on their face. And I was like, you know, guys, I've got a drinking problem. And I, I don't know why I chose in that moment to just say that because I've never said it to anyone in my life. But even people to suggest it, I would have been like, what are you talking about? I can run 10 miles right now and I could, you know, so I'd always defend it. But in that moment, I just said, like, I, I've got a problem. I'm not going to allow myself to go forward with this leadership course unless I make a commitment to you guys myself right now that this ends today. So let me do some things to make sure that happens. And so I called my wife, I called a friend of mine that was in AA and that was, yeah, that was the beginning of that. But, but to get back to, to kind of the, the questioning is I, for me, it didn't happen all at once because it happened later in life and it happened through, if you start doing things like meditation and yoga and self-discovery and going, you know, so I was doing those things at the same time of as drinking a lot, right? In fact, I would teach a yoga class and then go get drunk afterwards, right? It was very conflicting worlds. Um, but I think if you continue to do the work for, you know, whatever whatever that is, whatever that behavior is, will eventually get rooted out. I want to jump in and say something that you wrote to us. Can we ask all yeah. guests? to fill out a little form just to help us ask informed questions. And one of the questions is, what's the one bit of advice you would offer listeners to help them overcome their own crucible experiences and live a life of significance? What is a critical action you believe they can take to find hope and healing after a setback? And everything that you were just talking about for the last five to six minutes falls into your answer. And this is your answer to that question. You are what you continuously tell yourself you are. The right. stories that repeat in our heads are just stories, yet our brains will treat them as fact and look for evidence 
of being right. That really gets to the what Warwick calls soul work, right? What, what we've talked about, that inner work. You've got to get to that place. You've got to know what it is that's coursing through uh, your gray matter. And then you've got to get to work on on altering the story if the story needs to be altered. So I thought that was a – because I I sensed that we're probably going to pivot here in a bit. And I wanted to make sure that, that listeners understood that that – I mean, heard that incredibly good wisdom from you um, on how to tackle their own crucibles. No, thank you. And I, I, um, it took me a long time to understand that, right? That we're not our story. And, and I also believe that we as individuals have a love-hate relationship with our own stories. It's almost like being in a bad marriage where, you know, uh, boy, uh, you know, yeah, he he's abusive towards me, but it's the only one I know, right? It's the only thing I know. And it's like, I think that's how our stories are. It's like, well, what am I if I'm not the guy that can make a lot of money but can't hold on to it, that runs hard every day so that I can achieve? Like, if I'm not that, then what I am I? That That is a difficult... In hindsight, you're like, why wouldn't you just do that? Your life's so much better now. But in the moment, I think that's a very hard reality uh, to ask ourselves is, is what am I if I'm not this? Hmm. Uh, we get attached to our stories. People fall in love with the worst stories uh, about themselves, but they fall in love with them. They they generally, you know, I help them work out of it now. And it's like people get really attached to these stories. And I was definitely attached to mine. You know, that kind of leads into something else that you put on that uh, prep sheet. And I love you say, if you want to change your life, you must change your story. Right. So talk about, you know, how did you bounce back? How did you change that story of uh, who you were and how you thought and the desire for money and that's going to make me happy and, you know, drinking will help me forget about uh, some of my challenges. How did you change the inner the inner game how did you do the inner work how did you change your story so that you thought differently and therefore acted and lived differently you know what i think is interesting is like the higher version of ourselves is always there and always available and i don't think we have to change the the story necessarily i think we have to recognize the story gets displaced not not removed right it was still i mean that it still existed for a while um but it was just a story it doesn't need to be told over and over again and i think the reality is is who am i really i mean i think those are some of the questions you know if i'm not this then who am i really the biggest relief that i got early on from sobriety and and from this self-discovery which sobriety was part of was the ability to be honest because i felt like i had been bullshitting for ever you know, and not like outright lies, like where you're stealing from people. I'm just bullshitting about who I was, bullshitting about not having struggles, bullshitting about, you know, like, and to be free of that, that was the one gift I got immediately from, I'm like, oh, I get to just come clean up. I can come clean and be honest. And then that starts forming from their work. So I don't know if it's, for me, it wasn't overnight. Okay. I'm going from this to this. It was more like, well, I know what I don't want, right? I, I know that I'm still a leader, but I want to be authentic and I want to talk about my struggles and I want to care about something more than just the finances, you know, but the finances were still, I still felt depleted at that time. Like that had to grow. I mean, I had to still continue to do work in that area. And it wasn't until, you know, 
again, you, you figure your North Star or or get caught onto your North Star being of service and substance in a real way and let everything else fall where, where it may. I think part of what I'm hearing is you're rewriting your story, but you're living your life in light of the values and beliefs that are important to you. Yeah. You know, in terms of how you treat people, uh, the lessons you want to help people understand about it, identity and money and, you know, money can serve you, but uh, you don't want it to own you or control you. Uh, and there's a difference. So just talk a bit about how that's um, transitioned into what you do with your podcast, Leadership Lab, and your whole executive recruiting business. So how does your values and the identity of who you are now serve you in both the podcast you have and the business you have? Well, I think it was kind of funny because if you look at the mindset where the North Star is money, right? If the North Star is money, the North Star is money. Then we already talked a lot about what that looks like personally, but professionally, it's what can I build them for, right? Those are the kind of questions you're asking. Like, what can I build someone for? Uh, we can have enough money this this month, or we can have enough billings this month. You know, that's all you're focused on. And I think if you can get out of that mindset, then you can start focusing on things like, well, how can I just provide more value? Uh, understanding that the universe does reciprocate, right? And and that if you're dealing with the right people, they will reciprocate too. And so I don't need to count every trend. Everything doesn't have to be transactional. In fact, things shouldn't feel transactional in long-term relationships, right? So what can I do to be a better uh, client, service provider, friend, um, uh, boss, uh, whatever it is, instead of, because again, looking at it, even as an employer, it's like, what is she costing me? That's, that's what a financial scarcity mindset would be. What is this person costing me and what are they producing? Right? Like that, that's a very, like, instead of going like, Hey, we hired the right person. Is she developing in the time frame? Cause of course you got to have benchmarks and, but is he or she developing in the time frame that we thought they would? Are they exceeding expectations? That's great. If they're not, like, what can we do? But it's not all so like, bam, 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 like it has to happen like right now, right? So it's really helped in that degree. The podcast came from through Tony. I started doing like coaching, um, both group coaching, one-on-one coaching, stuff like that, and and it was sort of like, you know, hey, maybe we can support what we do because we primarily recruit leaders, and maybe there's a way to give ourselves more credibility in the leadership space while still providing again value. So how do we do that? And that's why you had you on the show and other great people that come on and um, leadership's a great framework for a podcast, I think, because we can go in a million different directions, right? We can talk about health and fitness, money, mindset, whatever we want. And we, and we do all of that, but the, the podcast has kind of been the umbrella of the recruiting business, the, the coaching, you know, kind of all of it under one thing, which is nice. What's fascinating to me is um, yeah, people write books on this, Jim Collins and Good to Great and yeah, a bunch of others, others. When you serve others, and you could read a hundred books on, I'm not a sales guy at all, but on sales strategy, marketing strategy, they'll all say, uh, when you serve other people, when you care about them, when you're trying to give extra value, all things being equal, you know, you'll do well. I mean, obviously, yeah. if the economy collapses, there are certain things that you can't control. But all things being equal, if you have a service mentality, if you have a value mentality in which, look, I'm not going to try and get every nickel and dime out of the customer for every little thing. I'm going to charge fairly. 
I'm going to be rewarded fairly for the work I do based on, you know, market benchmarks and all the rest of it. But my mentality is I'm just going to try and serve people. So like if you're in, in coaching and I do executive coaching as well, I might, my contract might say it's an hour. But if it goes an hour and 10, an hour and 15, an hour and 20, and I feel like in service of the client, I'm not going to go, well, I'm going to bill you an extra 10 minutes. Actually, it was 12.5. I mean, that's not a service mentality. And ultimately, they will appreciate the fact that you're not trying to nickel and dime it. You'd be charging fairly. Yeah. But you have this service mentality. And, you know, when it's service and caring about others and, hey, I want to help you achieve your objectives. That's my focus and getting paid fairly. Yeah, that's important. But my primary goal is I want to help you. And they yeah. believe that. They will stick with you. It's I always believe, and I may be an optimist or altruist and both, I believe treating people right, all things being equal, will lead to some level of business success. Not a guarantee, but put it this way. Treating people poorly, that will pretty much guarantee in the long term business challenges you know (laughs) of course look at it look at it with your employees you guys like so would you agree that most people i mean unless they're dealing with something kind of heavy but that's assuming no serious things going on personally most people that are that that you hire that if you screen for it and you interview for it you hire people that are like growth-minded that growth-minded people in general would get better year over year, right? Would you agree with that? To whether they're going to sure. get two two percent better or twenty percent better. Well, imagine if all you did was hire that kind of person and never turn them over, never, or as minimal as possible, right? And your entire staff just gets better and better month after month, year after year, quarter after quarter. How can you fail? You know what I mean? If you looked at it. So if you bring them on and go, well, I'm bringing on the right people. What can I do to create an environment um, that helps them help themselves, right? To continue to get better and continue to grow and continue to expand and to not leave. Because then when they leave, you just got to start over again. You're back to square one. And that's the thing we've really been focused on is to like bring on the right people, do the right thing by them. We haven't had any turnover in a year and a half in our company um, and we've had nobody self-directed leave since we started the Leaders Lab in 2021, so two and a half years ago. And that, to me, has been a huge part of our success because everybody just keeps getting better, you know. And it's hard to measure it day day by day, but when you look every few months over every few months, it's huge. And the customers feel it. And the customers get more value, and they'll pay more for more value. You know, it's 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 a good combo. That sound you just heard, listener was the sound of the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign, indicating that it's about time that we have begun our descent um, in our Beyond the Crucible Airlines airliner uh, to land the plane. But we're not quite there yet. Before we get there, uh, there is a bit of business I'd be remiss if I did not do with you, Ken, and that is to say, or to ask you, how can listeners find out more about the Leader Lab and about your podcast and about all the work that you do? Sure. So thanks for that. We're not really... Uh, I know it sounds weird because I'm jumping on other podcasts, but we're not trying to sell anything because at, at the Leaders Lab, really, we're a talent acquisition firm and we find the leaders that our clients want. So it's kind of a true headhunter thing. We don't really take applications or any of that. But if you own a company and you're listening to this and you're looking for 
uh, C-suite level leadership, or if you're at a bigger company, I'd say VP level or above, then certainly reach out to us. Uh, you can email me, Ken, at theleaderslab.co. Uh, if you'd like to hear more, we talk about subjects very similar. There's been a great conversation. Thanks, guys, for the great questions. But uh, we talk about stuff like this every week. So if you're interested in in, in diving in more into that, you can check out our podcast on you know Apple and Spotify and all the other spots. All right, Work. Last question is yours, as always. So, Ken, thanks so much for being here. Um, one of the questions we often ask is something like this. Um, for some listeners today, it could be their worst day. It could be in the bottom of the pit. They may feel a sense of hopelessness. It could be through addiction, uh, money, alcohol. Uh, they may just um, feel bad about themselves, angry at the world, uh, whatever their spiritual con- construct is. What would a word of hope be, and maybe not just a word of hope, but what would be the beginnings of the first steps of a solution? You know, because often I think you know, not to tease it out too much, but mindset's so important. So, for those that might be listening that might feel a sense of hopelessness, what would a word of hope be from your perspective? Uh, some first steps to consider to get out of the bottom of the pit. I think, like we were talking about earlier, the first one is realizing that it's just a story. And then it's not over. You know, if you think about any great movie you've ever watched or or person that you've admired, they've generally come from some kind of adversity. And can this just be the catalyst that allows you to come back and go, you know what, in 2023, I thought it was over, man. Like this happened and that happened. And maybe it's just the setup for what can be a really great story for you to tell other people later. Um, that's all it is. It's just... You know, it's, it's things we've strung together, either true or untrue, that you know that we're talking about in our head. And so, I think the first step is just realizing that, and then maybe using it as leverage. And speaking of leverage, I'll kind of throw that in: is what are the things that are truly important to you in your life? You know, do you have kids or a spouse or brothers and sisters and parents and whoever else that you know? you just want to do better for. I mean, I, I think one of the steps to creating lasting change, one of the first ones is to get leverage on yourself. When I decided to quit drinking that day, it was because I could fast forward in my mind and go, if I don't, I'm probably going to lose my wife. And if I lose my wife, I'm going to lose my relationship with my kids and, and eventual grandkids, right? And uh, I, that was leverage, right? And leverage can be good or bad. In that sense, it was uh, it was a little bit scary. I didn't want to go down that road. I knew something had to change. So again, it's just a story. Find the leverage on yourself and then seek out the resources. I mean, you're already doing that by listening to podcasts like this, but there are so many resources out there for all of us uh, if we truly are ready to make those changes. I have been in the communications business long enough, folks, to know when the last word on the subject's been spoken, and Ken Eslick just spoke it. So thank you, uh, listener, for spending time with us on this episode of Beyond the Crucible. And um, please understand that we know, um, uh, hopefully you've heard it through the stories of all of us here, uh, crucible experiences are hard. Uh, they don't go away quickly uh, in most cases. Um, they can linger many times. And it's not a one and done thing usually. It's usually an S on the end, crucible 
experiences, not just one. Um, but also know this, as we just heard from Ken's story, um, when those things happen, they don't have to be the end of your story. In fact, they can be the beginning of a new chapter in your story. That can be the most rewarding chapter you'll ever experience because where they lead is to a life of significance. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start? Our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.